Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. This morning we will pick up the Lord's third answer, of third of four answers, that he gives to an envoy, a question given to him at the beginning of chapter 7. Um, if you remember the outline of Zechariah that I proposed, the first six chapters are the eight night visions. We've looked at those in one night, God giving eight visions to Zechariah, promising a restoration of Israel, promising the punishment of her enemies, and calling them to further and renewed repentance and faith. Chapters 7 to 8 compose a, uh, a unit dealing with, with one question sent by the emissaries from Bethel and a four-part answer. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. And then starting in chapter 9 all the way through 14 are the two burdens of the word of the Lord. So eight night visions, one question, four answers, two burdens, the word of the Lord. And so the section that we're in, the, the answer to, to four, the four-part answer to one question, if you remember, Israel, during the 70 years of her captivity, that she was in Babylon, had instituted, had created fasts, commemorative fasts, um, honoring the, or remembering or commemorating the destruction of the temple, the breaching of the walls, the assassination of Gedaliah. And they would mourn, and they would abstain, and they would fast. And they'd been doing this for 70-odd years, beyond 70 years. And so in chapter 7, um, we read of the, the question of the envoy, verse 2, Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Ragem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have been doing for so many years? So this is clearly a burden to them. It's something they're really hoping the answer is yes, you've done it enough. They address their question first to the priests and the prophets, probably indicating they're looking for a simple yes or no answer. And what they get is a four-part answer from God. And the first two that we've looked at take the form of a rebuke, correction. Um, the Lord, in, in his first response in verses 4 through 7, asked them three questions. Were you really ever fasting for me? Was this ever really about me? And, and when you weren't fasting, when you were back on your regular eating and drinking, were you living for me? And, and did you ever listen to what I told you and I told your fathers through the former prophets? And the implied answer is at best, not fully, and more likely not at all. What we learn is God is not interested in ritual, religious ritual and exercise. He is not honored in our songs and our taking the Lord's table and all of our, our ministry that we do if it's not coming first and foremost from a heart that loves him, that knows him, and wants to please him. People were fasting, sure enough, but they were not doing it for the right reasons. And they were somehow hoping they had, they had earned up enough cred, enough, enough chips, enough currency, that God's favor would once again return without having to continue to do fasts. That's the, the first answer corrects that. The second answer we looked at last week reminds them of the pattern and the punishment of their fathers. God had sent prophets, and the call of the prophets was not to fasting, but to justice in the land, and to mercy, and to kindness towards the widow and the alien, and the sojourner, 
the orphan. No, no mention of fasting, just justice in the land and, and, and mercy in the land. And, and the fathers of the generation of Zechariah's day did not listen. They, they turned a stubborn shoulder. They blocked their ears. They hardened their hearts. And God scattered them. And God sent them to foreign lands. And he wouldn't hear their prayers. And the land that he was going to give them became desolate. And, and we saw in that judgment the undoing or the, the reversal of God's covenant promises to Abraham. Because God had promised to Abraham to be a blessing, to be his God, and to give him people, and to give him a land. And here God wouldn't hear their prayers. And here God scatters the people. And here God lets the land languish. And in case you think, well, wow, that's, that's kind of discouraging. It's followed in chapter 8 by two further responses that are greatly, greatly encouraging. As always, we saw this at the very beginning of the book, the position for blessing that God calls his people to is one of repentance and faith. So before God in chapter 1 could issue kind and merciful words to Jerusalem, the opening salvo of Zechariah in the first six verses is a call to renewed repentance and faith. And so likewise, as they ask this question, the first two answers are meant to gently correct. Guys, these, these fasts that you made up, they're, they're nice and all, but what I was really looking for was your hearts, and what I was really looking for was obedience. And now in chapter 8, we're going to see God just pour out lavish, lavish promises. Ultimately next week, seeing that he will turn their fasts into feasting. So we're going to read now our text this morning, Zechariah chapter 8, the first 17 verses. We get our text divisions by the introductory formula, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, and the next time we see that in chapter 8 is in verse 18, so we take 1 to 17 as a unit. Let's read that now. The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days... Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house, the Lord of hosts, was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days, there was no wage for a man or any wage for beast. Neither was there safety from foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor, but now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. 
For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not. But let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Marvelous passage with with lavish promises. And as we're looking at this, one of the helpful things to do when you're dealing with, with the Scripture, especially in the larger Chunks is looking for signs, indicators from the author of the divisions. And Zechariah gives us that here. You'll notice seven times in this section, the introductory formula seen first in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. Introduces something. God makes a promise. He declares something or he commands something. Verse 3, thus says the Lord. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. 9, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now we get a bigger answer, a bigger point. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord is is, going to make seven things he has to say here. And the first five come in the forms of promises. And while promises are mingled in the latter two, in the last two, starting in verses 9 and verses 14, he begins to directly address and directly charge and even command and call for obedience from the people. So I've broken this passage into two sections. First, kingdom promises in the first eight verses. And then kingdom prescriptions, ways we are to live, attitudes we are to have in light of these promises. Because one of the things we are going to learn is God never makes promises for the future simply for the sake of the future, but to give us motivation to live rightly now. The New Testament says anyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Eschatology, the study of future things, is not meant to be an abstract science. It is meant to be the motivation for a holy life. You may have noticed another thing in this passage, the the abundance of of the covenant name of God, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, appearing in chapter 8, 22 times, 15 times in this passage. And one of the things we're going to see here is, is God wants to make it clear that the message that Zechariah is giving comes from him. You, you can't escape that. I think the reason is the promises are so lavish, so great, so superlative, so amazing that God has repeatedly tie it to his own name, to his own character. We'll even see that one of the things he has to say is just, no, no, really, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do these good things to you. So let's dive in looking at the kingdom 
promises. And what, what they do is they reverse the judgments we saw at the end of chapter 7. If you remember, at the end of 7, I won't listen to them. The end of chapter 7, I scattered them. At the end of chapter 7, the land languished. We'll see the reversal, the promise reversal of all these things. Kingdom promises. First, the Lord will be zealous for Zion. Some of your translations translate verse 2 with zeal and some with jealousy. They, they come from the same concept. Um, we think of jealousy sometimes negatively. But God is a jealous God. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense in which we can be afraid of God's jealousy and there's a sense in which we can delight in God's jealousy. I heard uh, Phil Johnson once talk about this. He said his wife is jealous for him and and he'll be at the, the counter in the department store and the lady behind the counter, and he says he won't even pick up on this. The lady behind the counter might be being a little too forward. And he says his wife will come alongside of him and put, his, put her arm around him as if to say, he's mine. And he says, I delight in that. I delight in my wife's jealousy for me. He says, but nothing gets his wife more upset than when she hears of men in the ministry who have been unfaithful, and, and Phil Johnson I'm preaching on this, said, and periodically when she hears one, she'll look at me and she'll say, Phil, you ever do that to you, to me? I'll kill you. <laughs> and, and so God's jealousy is like that. God is jealous for his people. And because he's jealous for his people, when we sin, when we rebel, he will discipline us. And we can fear God's jealousy, but God is jealous for his people. And here we see we can delight in it as well. God will be jealous and zealous again for his people. Read it here in verse 2. The Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am, more accurately translated, I will be, I again will be, jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. The Hebrew, they're literally with great redness of face. This is emotional language. And what this is promising is God's concern for his people. This, this opening statement, this opening promise really sets the ground for everything that follows. All of the following promises and statements explain how that will be applied. God's great zeal, God's great love, God's great passion for his people and his redness of face and his anger at those who would oppress them. This is what sets up the whole package here. Judgment for Israel's enemies God's great concern for his people. He is zealous. He is jealous. Now you can imagine how discouraged Zechariah's people are or were. Once a great mighty nation, once having national, worldwide prominence and prestige, now a footnote in Persian history, not even having their own king. Now they've been rebuilding. The walls are coming back. The temple's being rebuilt, but still they're rather insignificant. There's only 50,000 or so of them. Maybe they were wondering, has, has God been so angry if we pushed him so far? Were our fathers so wicked? He's done? The answer is no. The answer is no. God loves them. He doesn't love them for what they've done, but according to Deuteronomy, he loves them because he loves them. And he will not forget his promises, and he will not forsake his people. The Lord will be jealous. This is picking up the themes introduced at the beginning of the book. Turn back to chapter 1. 
This is, this is the overarching theme of the message. Yes, throughout Zechariah, there are calls to repentance. Yes, there are warnings about what will happen if they disobey. But the overarching theme of the book is seen when the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, appeals to the living God in the first night vision. Verse 12 of chapter 1, the angel of the Lord of hosts said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you've been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem of mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So it was announced back at the beginning of chapter 1. And it's been touched on since then, but, but now in chapter 8 and then more and more fully in the final section of the book, these promises of this future restoration, this future glory, or what we could call a future kingdom, will be made more and more clear. And it starts, and it's all founded upon God's passionate love for his people. All that follows is, is founded upon God's passionate love for his people. The Lord will be zealous, full of great zeal and passion for Zion. This will then lead point B in verse 3. The Lord will dwell in Zion. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now this It's a huge promise to the people of Zechariah's day. If you recall, when Solomon, David's son, dedicated the first temple, and he prayed a prayer of dedication, the Shekinah glory of God descended, filled the temple so greatly that the priests had to leave. And ever since then, until shortly before the Babylonian captivity, there was a visible sign of God's presence with his people. The Holy of Holies, in between the wings of the covering cherubs, God's glory dwelt. And then, in a terrible act of judgment given by the the prophet Zechariah, God's glory, seen in stages, departs the city before Nebuchadnezzar shows up. God wants to make it clear through Ezekiel that when Nebuchadnezzar conquers the city, destroys the temple, and melts the gold, he had not defeated the God of Israel. The God of Israel had already Abandoned ship. It already left. And so ever since that leaving, the question has hung, will he ever return? Will the glory of the Lord return? Now there's already been a prophecy in in Haggai. In Haggai, who is the the first prophet sent to encourage these people, in chapter 2, verse 9, encouraging them over this, this very small foundation. It's not impressive. He promises them, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God has promised that there's coming a glory for this temple that, that Zerubbabel is leading the rebuilding effort of that will exceed the glory of Solomon's temple, but the people don't see it now. And we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that when they pray and when the, the temple is established, there is no Shekinah glory that comes. Much to the disappointment of the people of Israel's day. And yet here, the living God, and he doesn't say when. There's, some of this is still left unclear, and as we move into the final section of this book, we'll get more clarity. But know with certainty the Lord will dwell in Zion. He will again Set up his abode in Zion. He will again return. It's not until we get to Zechariah 13. If you jump over to 13, just to give you a little, a little, I mean 14, sorry, Zechariah 14. That we see this. We will get there. Verse 8, on that day living waters shall flow out of, from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summers and winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Jump back to verse 4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, referring to the Lord. And I've got to pause here and just say that we, we, the elders, pastors at Martinsdale, we believe that when God says things like this, he means it. And the reason why I've got to emphasize that is to some people, these promises are so specific and so land-centered that they sort of stumble over them, and they believe that all this talk of God dwelling in Jerusalem and God rebuilding the walls, really that's got to belong to the church somehow. And in fact, this issue is such a big issue that we're going to spend an entire week in two weeks dealing just with that issue. What is the relationship to the church in Israel? For now, I just want to say I think it's clear. Zechariah clearly thinks he's talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Zechariah clearly thinks the living God will take up residence in Jerusalem. And I believe that as well. That God will dwell with his people. Turn, turn to Psalm 2. Great messianic psalm. I believe that this will happen. It will happen in the messianic kingdom when the Messiah comes to Israel and is received and he rules. Listen to the description of this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, translate their Messiah or Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we know 
Three times in the New Testament, that passage is applied to Jesus Christ. We know this psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The king that God will set on Mount Zion will be none other than the resurrected Jesus Christ. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And three times that metaphor, this rod of iron, is picked up in the book of Revelation to describe the, the risen and glorified Lord's rule over the nations. So God will, again, return to Zion. You can go back to, to Zechariah. He, the, the resurrected Christ will rule the world from his Father's throne in Jerusalem. God will return to his people. And notice in this passage that as a result of God's return, the city and the people are changed. It has an effect on them. I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts the holy mountain. Now, up to this point, Jerusalem is not called the faithful or true city. In fact, you can read through the prophets, Jerusalem is described as an unfaithful, whoring wife, repeatedly in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And yet, once God comes and dwells with his people here, she will have a new character and a new testimony. And she'll be called the city of truth or faithfulness. And God's mountain will be seen as holy. God's glory previously departed, but he will return. He will dwell with his people. Point C, the Lord will ensure the peace and safety of his people. Now what we're getting here are more and more descriptions of what will it be like? What will it be like when the kingdom comes? You remember the question that, that Peter asked Jesus right before the ascension, Lord, is it now that you're going to give the kingdom to Israel? Why is he asking that? Because of passages like this that describe how good it's going to be, how wonderful it's going to be when God rules from the throne of David, when the Messiah institutes his kingdom. And one of the conditions we see is that in that day, the Lord will ensure the peace and safety of his people. Verses four and five, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Here's the point. Modern day Israel, if you've ever been there, my wife has, is not a place of peace and safety. That whole region is tumultuous. The Israelis all had cell phones long before we did, Serena learned, because whenever the bombs would go off, you'd have to call in with your parents to make sure you're okay. This is the Middle East, it's not a peaceful place. And the picture here is that the weakest and most unable to defend themselves, the very old and the very young, will be filling the streets of a metropolitan city. Get that. We're not talking about the streets of Martinsdale. This is Jerusalem. And it'll be so safe, it'll be so peaceful, the children will be playing in the streets, and the aged will be, will be standing up on their canes. I love this. I love this. From, from the, the, the tottering of the old to the, the, the cheerful laughter of the young, Jerusalem will be a city of peace. This is also further unpacked in, in Isaiah, where God promises the, the conditions of the kingdom. Let me, let me read to you Isaiah 65. Speaking of this, this kingdom... They'll be instituted. No more shall there be... Okay, 
verse 19, sorry. Isaiah 65, 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the city a sound of weeping and the cry of sadness. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. One of the things we learn about the Messianic kingdom is the effects of the fall are greatly restrained and reduced. This is the same passage where we learn that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that the wolf will eat hay. The child will stick his hand in the, in the hole of the snake and not be bitten. And, and life expectancy dramatically increased, so much so that if you only make it to 100, you'll be considered a cursed infant. Like, God must have been angry with him. He only lived to be 100, the poor little boy. And one of the reasons for this is we know that Christ will be ruling the nations with a rod of iron. There will be no repeat offenders. Think about that. Perfect justice. Executed swiftly. Perfect wisdom. Tempered with mercy. This is why you can have a metropolitan city thronging with children and the aged. Because justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. Also a picture of the prosperity as as children repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and New are seen as God's blessing. This remnant, no, the city will be overflowing. The Lord will ensure the peace and the safety of his people. Then point D, and as if the promises thus far the Lord understands are so great and so wonderful and so beyond imagining to these people, he has to stop and reiterate, the Lord will keep his promise. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. And that word marvelous can also mean difficult. If what I'm saying sounds too big, too unbelievable, too hard to imagine, just because you've got a small imagination, just because it seems difficult for you, the Lord says, it's not hard for me. Just because that seems like, no way! How could... God's saying, it's not too hard. And prior to the 1940s, if someone were to suggest that the Israelites, the Hebrews, would ever again be a geopolitical nation, you might get the same response. But what is difficult for us is not hard for the living God. It's marvelous in your sight, and the remnant in those days. Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts, which is to say, I know these promises are lavish. I know they sound big. I know this sounds like a tall tale. But trust me, believe me, I'm going to do it. This isn't hard for me. God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise. And finally, point E, the Lord will regather and save Israel. The Lord will regather and save Israel. Now, if the first promise gives us the ground of everything that follows, which is God's great, great zeal and passion for his people, this is the climax of the promises. There's only 50,000 of them returned from Babylon. We don't even know. We have no idea where Shalmaneser took the ten tribes. They just disappeared. They're gone. I mean, God knows. But Israel was dispersed twice, and we lost track of the first dispersion. Behold, verse 7, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. 
and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now again, i got to pause and talk about there's a school of theology amongst people who I love and respect, and I'll listen to speaking at conferences, who, who believe that there is no more future for Israel. That all these promises are either fulfilled in the return from Babylon or are being fulfilled spiritually through the church. And it's just very difficult for me to see how that can work in a book like Zechariah. What West country at this point had Israel returned from? To the West of Israel is the Mediterranean. No, Israel returned from the North and from the East, somewhat maybe from the South, but Babylon is to the North and the East. And 50,000 returned. And to a remnant who have already returned, God promises a future regathering. You, you can't argue that this, this regathering promised here was fulfilled in the return from Babylon because that's already happened. And it's going to be repeated again in this book that, that the Lord will regather his people. Look, look over at chapter, chapter 10. And, and I won't go into this in huge detail now because we'll go in much deeper when we get to chapter 10. But, but you're reading commentaries. Does God really mean he's really going to regather the Jews? It sure looks like it. Verse 8 of chapter 10. We'll, we'll go back to verse 6 to make it clear who we're talking about. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I, the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. And the children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice. Now we're talking about Judah, Joseph, Ephraim. You get who we're talking about? We're talking about the tribes of Israel. Then, verse 8, And I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles, strike down the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in my name, declares the Lord. And again, there's no way I can imagine Zechariah and his audience think we're talking about anything other than what they're talking about. So here's this wonderful promise. Yes, the initial return was meager. Yes, the initial return was, was pathetic. Let's, let's be honest. Just under 50,000 Israelites? There will be a regathering that overflows Jerusalem where God will gather all of his people. He will save all of them. And not just save them, but save them physically and temporally and eternally. Because notice, this is now when I told you that this passage fixes what was broken. This, this undoes the judgment of chapter 7. What happened in chapter 7? They're going to call to me, and I'm not going to listen. Broken relationship. And I'm going to scatter them. And I'm going to let the land languish. What happens here? I will save my people, verse 7. From the east country and from the west, I'll bring them back to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Relationship reestablished. Listen to them. Why? Because they're my people. They talk to me. They cry out to me. Why? Because I'm their God. 
back in the land, a land fruitful, overflowing, <coughs> back in relationship with God. These are the lavish promises poured out upon Israel. Now quickly, the, all of these promises are now meant in a direct address to Israel to, to call them to persevere and to obey kingdom prescriptions kingdom prescriptions and we know now that we're talking about the now because in verse 9 look thus says the lord of hosts let your hands be strong you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who are present on the day the foundation of the house lord of hosts was laid i'm talking to you folks you folks who are present when we laid the foundation of this new temple, you folks who've been hearing the words of Haggai and Zerubbabel, we're now, we're, now we're talking to these people now. We're not, we're not off into the future. We're back. And so that command, let your hands be strong, is, is, is a command to the people gathered around Zechariah. And point A, it's, it's a command to persevere and courageous faithfulness. In fact, this entire section is capped by this command. Look at verse 9. Let your hands be strong. Jump down to th- the end of 13. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. It's, it's, it's a word picture that pictures growing faint, growing timid, being afraid, and doing what the people had already done. Remember, they started the rebuilding of the temple. And then Sam Ballot and, and the other Assyrians and, and, and trouble came, and they got timid and timid and got scared, and they just gave up and stopped. They became fearful, they became discouraged, and they stopped working in the temple, they stopped obeying, they quit. And what God has done is he has put out and unpacked these wonderful, wonderful promises, just lavish promises of his love for them, his saving of them, his rule in their midst. They're once again being exalted among the nations. And the reason he's done that is not just so we can make neat little charts that we can argue about, but it was to call them to persevere. It was to call them to persevere. As we study the future of Israel, the future of the church, the future of the world, understand God tells us these things to give us hope so we can be faithful today. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Everyone. And so here, because of what's just been said, let your hands be strong. Don't grow weak. Don't grow timid. Don't get nervous. You see scary things in the news today? I do too. Don't grow faint. Don't shrink back. I've read the end of the book, and he wins. And we with him. Persevere in courageous faithfulness in the hopes of divine reversals. And God gives some more motivation here. He points to the way things were and the way things will be. So notice the first temporal marker, verse 9. You who are in these days. So we're talking to Zechariah's generation, the people in his presence, who have heard the words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation, the Lord of hosts, was laid that the temple might be built. For before those days, so now we're looking backwards, for before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out and came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. What God is saying is this. Previously, when you attempted to build the temple, the land was still not yielding much of a produce. There wasn't much, people weren't getting much of a paycheck. There wasn't much to feed the animals. There wasn't safety. There was uncertainty. You can, you can read Ezra and Nehemiah. You can see this. God says, fair enough. It, it was tough going. The, the, the land wasn't being productive. You had enemies. You were fearful. 
Fair enough. But now I'm going to reverse those things. Formerly, there wasn't, there wasn't food. There wasn't a paycheck. Now, look at verse 12. There shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall produce, give its produce. So our first point, first divine reversal, they will have peaceful and fruitful labor. Peaceful and fruitful labor. Peaceful, it'll be security. It'll be in peace. It won't be constantly looking over your shoulder. Fruitful because there actually will be a reward. There actually will be a result. First divine reversal, peaceful and fruitful labor. Second divine reversal, the remnant shall fully possess the land. The end of verse 12, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. 50,000 of them only, barely having any control over Jerusalem, maybe some of the outlying cities. And yet we know that by Jesus' day, they're back in control of the land. It's being disputed again now. There will be a day where they possess the land with certainty and certitude. But now, probably the greatest reversal to be hoped for is, is seen next in verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. You shall be a blessing. And that was, that was Israel's purpose. You go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to God's words to Abraham. Go from the country and from your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You get that? God's going to bless Abraham so that he'll become a blessing for all peoples, such that whoever blesses you I will bless, whoever dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then five chapters later, Saying it again, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Israel's purpose was meant to be a blessing. God was blessing them so they could be a blessing. They're not much of a blessing in Zechariah's day. They're a, they're, they're a mocking object of scorn and ridicule. And what he means by, as you've been a curse, their, their plight was so low, it's as though other people would say, oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll do to you what, what happened to Israel. You'd use them when you were looking for something in a curse or something detestable, you'd, you'd grab Israel and fill in the blank that way. And just as they had been an object of ridicule and scorn and a curse, now the Lord promises they'll, they'll be a blessing. They'll be a blessing. You've been a curse among the nations, O host of Israel. I will save you and you shall be a blessing. You will fulfill your role. You will fulfill your destiny. You will be a light to the nations. And we're going to see in Zechariah 14 all the nations of the world coming up every year to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. We're going to see even in the next section of chapter. Just go down. Just go down. We'll take a preview of next week. Verse 20. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go up at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. They're going to be a blessing. It's going to happen. It's coming. It's coming. And all this is being said. So don't, don't, don't shrink back. Don't be nervous. Let your hand be strong. Don't doubt. Persevere. Persevere in courageous faithfulness. And finally, the second command, obey. Obey in confident certainty. Verses 14 through 17. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. Now this is interesting. It's an interesting argument. What God is saying is God's judgments, that's your blank, God's judgments, judgments ensure his promises. God's judgments ensure his promises. What he's saying is this. Hey, guys, remember when I told you if you kept on being idolatrous, I would discipline you? And I went into great detail and great specificity of how I would detail you? Did did I do all that? Literally? Fully? Yes. Okay. So when I promise to do you good, you, you can bank on that just as much. Just as much as I fulfilled my curses to you, literally and fully, I did what I, I do what I say. You see that. We've already rehearsed Israel's history in chapter 7. Remember what I warned you, your fathers? I said I would do. I did it. So just as I did it and I did not relent, just as I was unwavering in keeping my promises of judgment to the unrepentant, so you can bank on the fact that I will be equally unwavering and equally faithful when I purpose to bless you. God's judgments ensure his promises. And then, coming back sort of full circle, we see that God's requirements do not change. God's requirements do not change. And remember, what started this whole thing was a question, hey, hey God, should we keep doing these fasts that we made up? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing them. Like I said, there's evidence from Daniel 9. It sure looks like Daniel is observing one of the fasts. As long as you have a right heart with God, and as long as you're being obedient, hey, we made up Christmas, we made up Easter. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. The danger is in skipping over the right heart, skipping over obedience, and just thinking because you, know, you show up to the Easter service and the Christmas service, you're good. We call those folks Christers. And it's alive today, this mentality. I can skip the heart. I can skip the obedience. I'll just show up to enough ritual to get me by. Have we fasted enough, God? Have we fasted enough? And what God pointed them to was the message the prophets he sent to their fathers had was not a message of fast. It was a message of justice and kindness. And here he comes right back to it. Verse 16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true. Make and make for peace. Do not devise evil 
in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Go back to chapter 7. You'll see just how similar that is to the message of the former prophets. Look at verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, or the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in his heart. So in chapter 7, hey guys, remember what I told your parents to do? Now in chapter 8, guys, that's what I'm telling you to do. My requirements have not changed. Now if, in addition to that, you want to keep fasting, go for it. What I'm interested in is your heart's. And then you living out hearts of faith by loving your brother, treating your brother, your sister, and your community with honor, respect, and kindness. What I've wanted from you, God is saying, has not changed. It hasn't changed from your grandparents. It hasn't changed from Zechariah's day. It hasn't changed since Micah 6.8 wrote, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or James Oh, you believe in God. Great. Even the demons believe and tremble. What use is it if you can't love your brother? If your brother or sister comes to you cold and unfed without shelter and you say, go in peace. What use is that? From beginning to the end, first and greatest commandment, we love God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our minds. That's what God wants. The second is like unto it. We show our love for God by how we treat our neighbor. Because, as we said before, your neighbor is the closest you will ever get to seeing God this side of heaven because they are, after all, made in his image. Get the order of priority. First, the heart. God wants us doing these things for him. He wants us serving him. He wants us passionate for him. Then he wants us loving our neighbor. He wants us just being obedient with ethics and justice and kindness. And then there is place and room for worship and ceremony. That's what David says in Psalm 51. God, I'd offer you bulls and goats, but you're not interested in bulls and goats. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Two verses later, after you've forgiven me, after we're restored, then I'll offer bulls and goats. David isn't really saying it's entirely optional. That book of Leviticus, you can just ignore that. What he gets is what's foundational. What matters most is our hearts. And then out of a faithful heart, Loving our neighbor, loving our brother, not devising evil in our hearts. Notice here, here is a love that God hates. So many things today done in the name of love. We just got to be careful. We need to make sure that what we love is what God loves, that we hate what he hates. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. As prosperity was beginning to return, as, as the temple was beginning to be rebuilt, old habits were starting to resurface, and God says, look, I'm going to tell you what I told your parents. Don't do what they did. Because I have so many blessings in store for you. I've got so many good things lined up for you. You won't believe it. It's just going to be marvelous. You're going to hear it. You're going to say, no way, no way. And God says, it's not hard for me. i am do it. Which brings me to one final question as we close. What What happened? If God sent this promise, what happened? Well, we know a few things. We know that even though in Zechariah's day, there appeared to be revival, we know that eventually he's martyred to death between the horns of the altar. And what we know is that God did return to his people in the form of a 
Jewish carpenter. And he showed up to the temple filled with great zeal. Right? Zeal for his house has consumed me. And did the people in that day, did they love justice? Did they hate false oaths? Were they kind to the poor and the weak? No, the people orchestrated a false court with false witnesses to oppress an innocent man and put him to death. God came to his people. They didn't heed this message, at least not for long. But he will come again, and we'll see in Zechariah 12 that they will... Just Let's close on Zechariah 12 because... Such a wonderful passage. And Zechariah's going to chronicle all of this. He knows Messiah's going to come. He's going to be rejected. He knows that. We're going to see that. But oh, that is not the final note. God did come to his people. His people murdered him. Zechariah 12, verse 10. The right moment. As all the nations of the world gather around Jerusalem to attack and destroy her. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's going to come a day in the future where because of God's sovereign work, not because of their goodness welled up within them, because of God's work and God's grace and God's spirit, they're going to get it. The blinders are going to come off and they're going to say, what did we do? And then God will come and fight for his people. And then God will establish his kingdom. And until then, it remains for us to persevere in courageous hope and to obey in confident certainty. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are jealous for us, that you will not let us slip through your hands. In your jealousy, you discipline, and in your jealousy, you encourage, and you comfort, and you sustain. Oh, Lord God, help us to be filled with hope of the things that you have promised to come so that we can live with confidence and courage in a tumultuous world, so that we can obey and we can love our neighbor is an act of loving you. Lord, come swiftly. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.